0: The sermon text this morning is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 8 to 14. These are the words of God. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes now, that we might behold wondrous things from your law. For we ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Well, last week we said that uh, the book of Philippians is Paul's uh, happiest letter. And in our passage this morning, uh, Paul really starts to pour on the love. Uh, but before we get into uh, these verses, I want to just uh, refresh our memories with the context for this letter. So, children and and adults as well, I have some questions for you. Let's see if we can answer these correctly. Where was Paul when he wrote the book of Philippians? Who kn- just shout it out if you know? In, so he was in prison. Who knows what city he was in? Rome. Yes, so Paul's in Rome, and who remembers, uh, bo- this is a bonus question, who remembers about how many miles it is from Rome to Philippi? Yeah, Nope. oh, false alarm. What was that? 800, 800, 800 miles, there, thereabouts. And uh, it's, this is one of the blessings of Google Maps. You could type in Rome, Philippi, and then uh, change the little icon to walking, because they have no planes or cars. And it'll tell you that it takes about, I think, 27 days or so to walk there. And uh, or, uh, I, did, I did some calculation. I think that's if you walked for eight hours a day. So, I mean, it, it takes a long time to get from Rome to Philippi. You would have had to probably hop on a ship. And who remembers the, the name of the guy who takes this journey from Philippi to bring a gift to Paul in prison? What was his name? Who knows? It starts with an E. Epaphras? Close. Epaphroditus. And we're, uh, we didn't talk a lot about this last week, so I forgive you for not, for not knowing. But you, you guys should really read ahead. Um, we'll get to Epaphroditus. Who was Epaphroditus? Uh, Paul calls him in Philippians 2.25, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier. And uh, he's kind of the go between the messenger who's going to, he's the one who delivers the gift to uh, Paul, and then he's also the person that Paul's going to send back to Philippi with this letter. So Epaphroditus is going to deliver this letter of Philippians uh, to them. And if you remember, uh, Paul is going to talk about Epaphroditus uh, risking his life. So he's going on this long journey with a gift, so you're a a target for, for someone to rob you, and he gets almost fatally sick as a result of this. And the Philippians catch word and they're worried about him. So just like we announce someone's sick, let's pray for them. They heard Epaphroditus is sick. He might die. So the church is worried about them. And before email or text message, it's going to take time for news to then get back to Philippi about the status of Epaphroditus. They don't know did he die? Did he, get, did he get there? Did he deliver the gift? So this will be quite uh, the momentous uh, time when Epaphroditus shows up <laughs> there with the letter from, from Paul. So Epaphroditus is Paul's uh, companion, fellow soldier, a brother. Um, all right, who remembers how long it has been since Paul planted the Philippian church and the writing of the, the book of Philippians? About how many years was it? 12? I think I heard 12 back there. Yeah, somewhere between 11 to 13 years. So 12, you're right on the money there. Uh, so he planted the church in Philippi on his second missionary journey, so in around 49 A.D., and then he writes Philippians, and this is one of those books that most scholars all agree on. He wrote it in, in 62 A.D., Now, uh, last question, Bible question here. Where in the book of Acts, what chapter do we uh, read about the planting of the church in Philippi? Who remembers what chapter it is? 16. Thank you. Thank you, Doyles. I can count on you. All right, church, we're just going to stop the sermon here. You need to go home, (laughs) read your Bibles more. Okay, I'll do this more often. Eventually, we're going to be in this book for the next few months, but I want you to know this book really well so that eventually when you open your Bibles to to read it, you already have all of this context in in your mind. Okay, Uh, well done. Uh, I'll have chocolate for the kids afterwards. All right, Uh, one of the reasons that this is Paul's happiest letter is because the Philippian church is the first church to financially support Paul's ministry. He thanks God for their, quote, fellowship in the gospel, and he calls the Philippians partakers of my grace. Whatever rewards that Paul is going to receive on Judgment Day, the Philippians will have some share in it. This is how God's economy works, and this is how we work together as one body. As the missionary uh, William Carey said uh, before he went to India, if you will hold the rope, I will go down. If you will hold the rope, I will go down. The Philippians are the ones holding the rope as Paul goes down to suffer for the name. Now, what does holding the rope look like? Well, in this case, we might think of someone like Lydia. Remember her? She was the first Christian in Philippi. She was a merchant who sold purple or purple stuff. And this Christian, a businesswoman we might call her, is doing kingdom work when she provides beautiful colored clothing for people, when she runs her business in a honest and profitable way, and she does it for the glory of God. And then when the opportunity arises for Lydia to bless or help someone else, she actually has the means to do so. We cannot give what we do not have. And God had placed Lydia, who was from Thyatira, which is a long ways away, he had placed her in Philippi, for this very purpose, to help along Paul the Apostle. There is a long chain of people and circumstances and sacrifices, big and small, that God uses to bring us into his kingdom. Think of your own story. How did you come to faith? What is the chain of gracious providence to bring you there? Your eternal salvation depended upon God's good pleasure in arranging someone to tell you the good news, whether by a preacher in the pulpit or parents spanking the sin out of you, whether by a YouTube sermon, a conversation with a friend, or a Bible left in a hotel room. There is a long chain of events that God used to save you, and all of them trace back to what we read right here in this book. So what we might consider in the moment to be of very little significance can have ripple effects on into eternity. We would not be here without the work of the apostles and those that supported them and countless other people that you don't even know about in between. So when we read Philippians or when we read any other book in the Bible, you should treat it as though you are reading your own family history because you are. We are wild olive branches that have been grafted in to this story, Romans 11. So with all of that in mind, as kind of setting the context, uh, the vibe of this uh, book, let us proceed now to these next uh, seven verses, verses 8 to 14. And these uh, should be printed in your bulletin if you want to follow along. We could uh, divide these seven verses into two sections. Uh, Verses 8 to 11 give us the contents of Paul's Prayer. And then verses 12 to 14 uh, are Paul's explanation of his imprisonment. So, uh, starting in verse 8, he says this For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. So, here Paul is calling God to witness the genuineness of his longing for the Philippians. That is to say, what I feel for you in my heart, God knows and God sees and he can testify to it. And I appeal to God that my love for you is not in word only, but in deed and in truth. So this is the strongest language that Paul can use to communicate his love by letter. He, does, he then goes on to say that this love for the Philippians is not merely the natural love that, say, a mother might feel for her baby or that a two unbelieving uh, a husband and a wife might feel for one another. Uh, those are natural loves. Those are common to men. Th- those are good. But this love that Paul has for the Philippians is more than that. We would call it supernatural. It is a gift from God. What the Christian tradition used to call charity. Uh, Charity wasn't just, you know, I give you some money or we have charitable organizations. In Christian theology, charity is the love that's beyond natural love. It's something that is a grace and gift from God. In Greek, it would be agape is, is the word here. So we know this love, this charity, this agape is supernatural because it says it is in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Now, It's kind of a strange phrase, perhaps for some of us to read. What are the bowels of Jesus Christ? Well, uh, kids, you get to learn a Greek word today—a fun Greek word—and that Greek word is "splonk noise." All right, let's 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 all say this together: "splonk noise," "splonk noise." So you know some Greek now. So "splonk noise" it gets translated as bowels. uh, When Judas hanged himself, and then he falls, and his his splonk noise are what come out of his body. In other places, it's translated perhaps uh, as tender mercies in your Bible. So what, what are these bowels, these splonk noise? Well, it signifies uh, the inward parts of your being, uh, what we modern people might call the feels. It's the place that you feel anxiety, uh, nervousness, loss of appetite, uh, flutters of the heart when you're in love. It's all kind of here, right? Nobody says, I'm in love. My hand keeps twitching. Well, maybe maybe it is because you're nervous. But the the splonk noise, the bowels, the innards, this is where uh, you feel things. And uh, according to modern science, take this for what it's worth, they say that about 90 to 95 percent of the serotonin in your body is actually in your gut. That's where it's produced. It's Only a small percentage is in your brain. And so if you've got uh, tummy problems and you're depressed, uh, there might be a a connection there. So uh, the splunk noise of Jesus Christ refers to this deep affection in God, which Paul participates in. He loves the Philippians with the very love of God. This is what supernatural love is. It is loving someone else with the love that God has for them. You are participating in it. That's what he means by the bowels of Jesus Christ. If you look around, uh, 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 if you look around this room, uh, we are an odd-looking family, some of us more odd-looking than others. We come from different places. We are different ages. We are in different stages of life. We like and dislike different things. And uh, despite what we might think, we are not all inherently lovable. It will take supernatural love to keep us together. We are going to have to have to cover one another's sins in love. We are going to have to tell one another at times, I was wrong. I sinned against you. I meant what I I said that mean thing. I meant it and it was sinful. Will you forgive me? It will take that kind of supernatural love and humility to keep us together, right? That is unnatural. The world can uh, get together. They can get a big group together on Sundays for a football game, right? You can get thousands and thousands of people to share this common interest and love for the Seahawks or whoever who, your team is, right? But those people go home afterwards. Maybe some of them will go drink at the bar together. But for this, this group of people, this 100 and some uh, uh, group, it's going to take a lot more to hold us together than uh, cheering for the Seahawks, right? For us to go the distance, for us to go for decades together, Lord willing, there's going to need to be divine intervention to smooth over the bumps when we inevitably bump into one another, when we, when we fight and argue. And so we must ask God to give us this love that is in the bowels of Jesus Christ so that what God feels for others, what God feels for one another, we feel in ourselves. So Paul longs for and loves the Philippians in Christ. Now how does this love manifest itself? It's one thing to say it, uh, we should say, I love you, uh, but it's another thing to demonstrate it. And the way that Paul demonstrates his love is by praying for the Philippians. And there are three things that he prays for in verses 9 to 11. It says this, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more, in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. So let's walk through these uh, three petitions that Paul uh, prays to God for. The first thing he says is that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. All right. This is a great book because it's teaching me as your pastor to know how to pray for you. right? I should be praying that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Now let's think about this. Uh, Because God is infinite and we are not, we're finite, there is no end to which our love can increase. Tracking? So if God's love is this uh, vast and endless ocean, our love is kind of like the size of whatever cup or bowl, or bucket that we can bring to the ocean, fill up, and carry with us. It says in Psalm 119, 32, I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. So our love can abound more and more when God gives us the strength to carry a bigger bucket, so to speak, to the ocean. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 6, 11 to 12. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Think about that. You are restricted by your own affections. Paul's prayer is that the Philippians would have love without this constraint, and that God's supernatural love would constantly be pouring out from one member to another, so that when One of us is low, the rest of us get around them and fill them up. When when I'm low, you fill me up. When you're low, I fill you up. This is what it means for love to abound more and more in the church. Now, uh, this love uh, must not be confused with sentimentality or mere sentimentality, that warm feeling that we have in the bowels. That is good. It's nice to feel it. We hope we have that. But notice that Paul prays for this love to abound in knowledge and in all judgment. What does this mean? Well, first it means that love is not ignorant. Paul says in Colossians 1.9, I desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Uh, So one of the ways you can know that God's love is inside of you is that you desire to know God more. You want to read your Bible. You want to talk to him. You want to talk to other people, and you're actually interested in other people besides yourself. As it says in John, uh, 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Is your love abounding in the knowledge of God and your brother? Do you love God? Do you want to know Him, and do you want to know and love His people? A uh, second, this love is to abound in all judgment. We live in a day that says love and judgment are opposed to each other. They are opposites. And our culture has made being non-judgmental the defining characteristic of love. But this is Antichrist. This is the opposite of how God defines what love is. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoiced in the truth. Hebrews 5 13 to 14 says, For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. so mature, God-like love does not simply approve of everything that someone does, Uh, and in fact, it is unloving to do so. Think about this. If God's love for sinners simply approved of them, then why did Christ die? If God's love for sinners was non-judgmental, then why does, he command everyone, uh, why does he command everyone everywhere to repent? For us to approve of sin is actually to hate the person that we claim to love because sin is destructive to the person doing it. God says in Proverbs 8, 38, he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. So far from approving of sin, Love requires judgment. Love requires discernment. It requires a sense of right and wrong. Love is to seek someone else's good, and without these abilities to judge and discern, how can you know what that good is? And this leads to the second petition in Paul's prayer in verse 10. He says, I pray that ye may approve things that are excellent. So love not only judges and disapproves of sinful things, it also approves of and applauds that which is excellent. And so one of the ways that we can practice this as a church is by encouraging and honoring one another when something is done well. This is what parents are to do with their children. We discourage vice and we praise virtue. When your son or your daughter cheerfully obeys, you should praise them. That is excellent. Excellent. And when your children reach the age where they start to look for a spouse or must choose a career path or a place to live, ask yourself, will they want to come to you because they trust your judgment? Will you have demonstrated for the last 20 years or so that you love what God loves and hate what God hates? and that you approve of that which is excellent and disapprove of things that would harm your children. Do they trust you that way? That kind of trust cannot be built overnight. And so begin now, begin when they are little, begin wherever you are at. Approve things that are excellent and disapprove of folly and sin. And children, you are still uh, not mature enough to know right from wrong all the time. And so you should defer to your parents. You should think, think long on what they say when you ask them for advice. The purpose of all of this comes in Paul's third petition for the Philippians in uh, verses 10 to 11. He says, I pray that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. The sense of this third petition is that the Philippians would be authentic Christians, that they would not give the watching world a reason to blaspheme. This means reflecting Christ's character wherever you are at, at work, in the car, in your home, when you shop at Walmart. Don't be that frustrated parent who cuts down and demeans your child. Don't be that annoyed and disrespectful husband or wife. And don't just avoid looking like you are one of those people, sincerely be the person that Jesus is calling you to be. When the church reflects the contents of these three petitions, abounding in love, approving what is excellent, living in sincerity and without hypocrisy, the world, the world will notice. Doors will open up for us to preach and receive a favorable hearing. This is the kind of public reputation God wants us to have. But it must start in private, in the heart of every person here, in the places when nobody else is watching except God. So that is Paul's prayer for the Philippians. And then he moves on in the next section, verses 12 to 14, to give an example of how God is using Paul's imprisonment to further the gospel. Now, I want you to think of something. If anyone was sincere and without offense, I think we would agree Paul fits that category. And unless he's lying, he says this himself in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, Giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, and the list keeps on going. Paul's ministry was a prime example of sincerity and without offense. Paul was above reproach. And yet, if you look at Paul's life, you read the book of Acts, you read his letters, uh, people reproached Paul all the time. This is the guy who has been imprisoned. He's in and out of prison all the time. He has mobs chasing him out of cities. He's known amongst the Jews for preaching contrary to the laws of Moses. In their minds, he's a heretic. This is a false accusation. He was kicked out of Philippi for stirring up trouble. Remember the, the trouble he stirs up. He casts the spirit of a python out of a woman and she's delivered and he's now messing with their economy because this is how they were making money. And so they say, you are disturbing the peace. You need to get out. So when Paul says to be sincere and without offense, he doesn't mean that everyone will think that you are sincere and without offense. Often it's going to look like people calling you Pharisees. This is one of their their tactics is to shame you because you are a goody two-shoes, right? You are the most righteous person in the room. Oh, this is a tactic of the world to shame you into covering your light, putting it under a shade. So to be sincere and without offense does not mean everyone will think that about you. Paul means in the eyes of God and in reality You are sincere and without offense. So he wants the Philippians to have a heavenly perspective on things, to not just think about the optics on the horizontal plane, but to think vertically. What does God think about this situation? And he wants the Philippians to think with this heavenly perspective about his own imprisonment. Prison is not a setback for Paul, it is a step forward. He says this in verses 12 to 14. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear." Now, this is the beginning of a major theme in the book of Philippians, and one that we will uh, return to uh, multiple times, and that is this, prison is a prelude to dominion. That could be like the title for the sermon series, prison as prelude to dominion. Think about this. What does uh, Who was the first person in the Bible to be imprisoned that we read about? In Genesis. Who knows? Joseph, yes. Joseph. Like Paul, think about the parallels between Paul and Joseph. There are many. Like Paul, Joseph was persecuted by his brothers according to the flesh. They envied him. We're going to see next week people are preaching the gospel out of envy for Paul. This is something similar that Joseph experienced. His brothers wanted him dead. And yet Joseph's imprisonment was the prelude to God exalting him to the right hand of Pharaoh. And more than that, Joseph's suffering and then exaltation becomes the actual way that God saves the world from famine, including the very brothers who persecuted him. As he says in Genesis 50, 20, but as for you, ye thought evil against me, But God meant it unto good, to to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. Think about those parallels. Paul is preaching the gospel. He'll say in Romans 9, I have unceasing anguish in my heart for my kinsmen according to the flesh, that they would believe the gospel. He's being persecuted by the people that he used to be Hebrew of Hebrews, you know, the, the brightest shining light amongst the Pharisees, zealous more than anyone else, and now they're the ones that are trying to kill him. Paul knew the story of Joseph. He knew it well. He also knew the story of someone else who was in prison, Daniel. He knew the story of the Lord Jesus, and he recognized this pattern that takes place again and again in the Bible, that in order to ascend to power, before you Uh, receive dominion, you must first descend. The pit is where God prepares us for the palace. And that when we are down there in the pit, that is where God keeps his choicest wines. God keeps his choicest wines in the cellar of affliction. This is the perspective that Paul wants the Philippians to have. That even when the enemy appears to get what he wants, God has a glorious purpose in it for his people. This is the story arc of the gospel and the story arc of your life if you are going to keep following Jesus. It goes cross before crown, humiliation before exaltation, death, and then resurrection. The disciples thought that the death of Jesus Christ was a real setback. Evil won, injustice prevailed. And yet, that is how God saved the world. That is how God saved you, and it is how he continues to save people today. If we believe this, then we don't have to be afraid of anything. Like Paul's companions, we can wax bold and preach the word of God without fear. We don't have to be afraid of anything. We can look death and prison in the face and see God's gracious hand in all of it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the comfort and encouragement of the Scriptures. I ask that you would give us the mind of Christ, a mind like Paul, that can think of someone like Joseph or Daniel, that can think of the ways you have worked in times past, and how you always have taken care of your people. You have always worked evil things for a good purpose, and often in the moment, we have no idea what that looks like. And so, God, we ask that you would take whatever trials, uh, big or small, that are in front of us, whatever frustrations, whatever toilsome labor is in front of us, and that you would cause us to give thanks for it that you would change our relationship to our suffering, that we could see it as serving our joy, as serving our good, that we would come to have this perspective on all of the hard things that you put in our life for our good. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen.